Yes, I knew Sister White. We will not fear. The kingdom is alive. The kingdom's on the move with the poor and the meek and the hungry and the lonely. I'll never forget it. Welcome to Adventist Voices, Spectrum's podcast. I'm Alexander Carpenter, and I am joined by two wonderful repeat guests to our production. Thank you for joining me, Julius Nam and Alyssa Williams. Now, we're going on a journey a little different than we usually do, where we're going to celebrate the narrative arts. So um, let's start with uh, Alyssa. And would you mind just um, telling us briefly um, what story you're going to be telling us today? Sure. So I'm going to be talking about uh, Margaret Matilda Wright Rowan, uh, who is a really fascinating woman from Adventist history. Great. And Julius, would you mind telling us about your story? Yes, of course. I'll be telling the story of Dr. Clyde Albert Hazmer, missionary to Korea in the 1920s. Thank you. I am um, so thankful for you joining me in this experiment. Um, I was transfixed by both of your stories um, while I was reading them, probably late at night on Twitter, because both of you not only were telling a story that I had never heard before um, in Adventism, but you um, used the medium of Twitter to break it up, create a flow, create a great sense of um, kind of introduction and climax and denouement. And um, if you wouldn't mind, before we jump into these stories, just telling me what drew you to, you know, doing it that way rather than, you know, uh, writing it out and publishing it in a sort of uh, written uh, form on, on the website or, or any other uh, way. Sure. So uh, for me, I've been doing uh, stories on Twitter for probably about a year or two years now, just every once in a while. And I find it a really interesting medium. I think um, with the Twitter threads, you can build um, such suspense and tension with your stories. You have these very short bursts of information. You get, what, 240 characters uh, per tweet. And so you have to really craft every single one of those tweets so that it, it is kind of a miniature, um, whole, concise piece of the story um, within the story and build and build and hope hope that uh, your audience stays with you. And so I've done it a few times. I've never done it with um, an Adventist history story before, but I'd heard this story a year or so ago and just thought it was so fascinating and had kind of been working on it in bits and pieces here and there and finally was just like, you know what, I'm going to put it out there. And uh, people seem to really enjoy it. So that was fun. Yes. Well, I absolutely did. Um, and Julius, why did you uh, jump into this uh, kind of weird uh, experimental world of storytelling? It is an experiment for me, but I should say uh, part of my inspiration was at least uh, reading her stories on, on Twitter and, and others who are using this medium 
which requires a lot of discipline in terms of how you tell the story. Because, of course, you can just go on and on and on, but at some point, people will stop reading because people are used to reading just short blurbs, just a few tweets uh, in chunks. And so I thought I would take up the challenge of trying to tell a story, but in a way that's disciplined, mixing up at times with photos or other illustrations that I could find. And I'm still experimenting with it, but I think what sometimes makes the story work in the sense of both in the writing of it and some of the responses that you get, what makes that story work is um, the material itself, the, the fascinating nature of the stories. And so I, it's hard for me to take any credit for the story itself. The story itself uh, that hopefully that I'll be able to share effectively today is fascinating. Absolutely. So let's jump into these stories. Uh, Alyssa, take us away. <laughs> sure. All right. So today we are going to be learning about self-proclaimed prophet and attempted murderer, uh, Margaret Matilda Wright Rowan. So the year was 1916 and the place was Southern California. Um, Ellen G. White had just, uh, she's been dead for less than a year um, when 35-year-old Margaret Rowan entered stage left. And I'm going to call her Mag because I feel a deep connection to her and I'm telling the story. So it works. <laughs> so Mag um, was an entrepreneurial sort of person and she saw this open opportunity and decides, oh, hey, Ellen White is dead um, and Adventism is in need of a new prophet. So it might as well be me, right? Um, or however these conversations with yourself go. But the problem is nobody was really buying what, what Mag was selling, right? Everyone was really hung up on Ellen White as the one and only. And I mean, she had just died a year ago. Um, and, you know, Mags could have let the people grieve maybe a little bit longer. That might have helped her out. But no, no, she didn't have time for people's grief. She knew what she needed to do. And what she needed to do was she needed um, Sister Ellen to declare her the next prophet. Um, but, of course, Ellen White was already dead. So how do you do that? Well, Mags decides to orchestrate a forged letter be added to um, the official files at the LNG White Estate. One of these, like, you know, I have been shown, I have seen um, letters. So you know the type. So what exactly had Ellen supposedly seen? Well, she had supposedly been shown that Mags was to be the next prophetess um, after her death. Um, but the problem is Mags was maybe in a little too much of a hurry to get this letter in there, and she made a few kind of obvious mistakes with her forgery. So right away, church leaders were like pretty convinced that this was not an Ellen G. White letter. Um, the type of paper was different. The typeface was wrong. There's no file number. And the signature was like obviously not Ellen White's signature. But church leaders could not figure out for the life of them, like, how did this letter get into the file, into the archives? Like the archives, you know, are under lock and key supposedly <laughs> like how how like how is this in there um and because they didn't have an answer for how this letter had mysteriously appeared um that was enough for Adventists to really start you know wondering if maybe Mags was this next you know prophetess so next thing you know um <laughs> Mags starts this offshoot of Adventism 
Washington State Official Church wouldn't recognize her godly channel, right? So officially they were called the Los Angeles, California Seventh-day Adventist Reformed Church. Um, but that's obviously a mouthful. So let's just call them the Rowanites. That's what uh, they were known um, by their dissenters. <laughs> Quite a few people who made fun of them. Um, but Rowanites works for me. So um, the years kind of are going on and on, and her church is growing. And she starts collecting tithes because, you know, that's what she do. Um, and she also starts making predictions. So specifically, she says that Jesus is coming back on February 6, 1925. Um, so obviously that didn't happen. Um, and when her end-time prophecy didn't come true, people started um, being a little more skeptical. And people started um, disbanding. But... The real blow came when it was uncovered that she had actually been um, embezzling the tithe money and using it on herself. And the person who discovered this was a Dr. Bert E. Fulmer, and he was one of her most ardent followers. Um, he, you know, just believed everything that she was putting out there. But he discovered that she had embezzled $17,000. And, it was, you know, he was pretty morose about it. Um, and then he started feeling pretty guilty because turns out he was the one who had orchestrated having that forged letter put in to the E.G.Y. estate all those years before. Wow. So, on, <laughs> on March 12, 1926, he confesses to church leaders that he was the one who planted the forged letter in an open drawer. He had been there on business. He saw the vault open. He just stuck the letter in there. Um, I don't really know what the point of the vault is if you're not going to lock it, but <laughs> hopefully over the years, <laughs> so the people running the, the estate have done a little better with that, hopefully. Um, so this is uh, spring 1926 by now, and you know it's, it's been a pretty rough year so far for Mag. Um, you know, and as you can imagine, she was pretty annoyed at the doctor for betraying her like that. So she and a couple of her uh, faithful followers, uh, she did still have a few left, um, decided to have the plan. So Dr. Fulmer, um, you know, being a physician, he made house calls. And late one night he gets this call at this nearby hotel, some kind of like a roadside stop, and that this um, person needs aid. And so he didn't think twice about it, probably should have, but he goes and he enters the room. And as he's entering the room to help this alleged person who needs help, he's struck over the head with a pipe, like a lead pipe. <laughs> I don't know about you guys, but, like, I love the game Clue. And so, like, for me, like, I read that and I was just like, what? What is happening? Um, so, guests um, heard the struggle and they called the police. And when the police arrive, they find Rowan and two co-conspirators, um, Dr. Jacob Boulder and his nurse, Mary Wade. And they have um, morphine, strychnine, a hypodermic needle, a shovel, a burlap sack and rope like they were prepared like they were prepared to like knock this guy unconscious and murder him and bury him somewhere <laughs> they were not messing around so they attempted to flee they were not successful they ended up getting arrested and Max confesses to all of it um but before she goes to trial for attempted murder the doctor dies and so she gets released. She ends up getting released after about a year in prison for good behavior. And then, like, she's out of she's out of jail. And then all of a sudden, she just disappears. Like, we're not exactly sure what happened next. 
um, supposedly she went down to Florida. Eventually, she apparently came back to California under a pseudonym. And that's where, like, we have a few records that she seems to have picked up back where she left off trying to be a prophetess again, but was not nearly as successful this time around. And she, you know, eventually passed away in 1900. And there you have it. So you have Margaret Matilda Wright Rowland, um, would be prophetess and murderer who spectacularly failed at both. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Great story. Um, yeah, and I, I think I. I uh, shared with you, Alyssa, that the doctor who died about a year later, he died after making an early morning house call. Yeah. And under suspicious circumstances. Yeah, and, you know, I was just, I, I found out more information about her um, since I wrote the story. And I don't know, Julius, maybe you know whether this is true or not. Um, I found this thing that says, so apparently, um, Max had several husbands over the years, and one of them listed on the genealogy site is Dr. Burton Fulmer as one of her husbands. And I don't know if that's correct, but um, so if it is, she basically tried to murder her ex-husband for betraying her, which adds a whole new element to the story, which I just find fascinating, but I don't know if that's for sure true. I, I did not know that, but the things that you can find on genealogy sites well, that's uh, fascinating. Um, and uh, we'll return to ask Alyssa questions about uh, the story and about the process. But let's go over to Julius. And why don't you uh, bless us with a second story uh, from Adventist history? You are definitely blessed by Alyssa's story. I don't know if this, is, <laughs> this will be a blessing or a curse, but here we go. Here's a story, story of Dr. Clyde Hazmer, who comes from the same time period. We're talking about 1925 and 1926, except on the other side of the Pacific Ocean in Korea. So Dr. Clyde Hazmer is a 28-year-old medical doctor who went to Korea as a Seventh-day Adventist missionary. He goes there with his wife. Initially, he goes to Japan, starts learning Korean in Japan, and then makes his way to Korea. And at that time, the center of Seventh-day Adventist work in Korea is in the northern part of Korea, in today's North Korea, what would today be the site, exact site of uh, the international airport in North Korea. So there was a hospital called Sunan Hospital, and there Dr. Hazmer worked, but for not too long because of a very sad, tragic, unfortunate criminal incident that happened in 1925. In fact, I'll just give away the ending right away, which is that he was convicted of a crime of inflicting bodily injury on a Korean boy. And he was released from mission work, was uh, whisked out of Korea, if you will, while the case was an appeal and became the center of a big international controversy, which I'll share with you a bit about. So one day in the summer of 1925, Dr. Hazmer he claimed to catch a boy stealing an apple from his garden where he was, he had some apple trees and apples were pretty rare still in Korea at that time, having been introduced to Korea, uh, at least at a more popular level by American missionaries in the late 19th century. So uh, there's, there are stories of uh, apples being uh, harvested and sold in Vladivostok, which is the, the, one of the closest cities 
Russian studies at really at a premium cost. And these are North Koreans who are trying to make money that way. And so it was apples were precious. And this boy who at that time was 12 years old, uh, according to Dr. Haysmer, uh, came and uh, he had stolen an apple from Dr. Haysmer's apple tree. And Dr. Haysmer caught him and decided to teach him a lesson. Apparently, this was not the first time uh, kids had stolen apples from his apple orchard or in his garden. So he, Dr. Haysmer, decided to call the boy's mother. So in the meantime, he tied up the boy to the apple tree. And uh, his, the boy's name, uh, as, the, uh, as has come to be known in the media thereafter, his name is last name Kim, Kim Young-sup. And while the boy is tied up, the mother is brought. And Dr. Haysmer gives the mother two choices. The first choice being Dr. Haysmer would call the police and report the boy as a thief. No one would, no one would want their 12-year-old child to start their teenage years with the criminal records. So the other option was to write the Korean word for thief. Uh, and this is in Korean, North Korean dialect, Do which is in two syllables. So on the two cheeks of the face, uh, those two words would be inscribed with silver nitrate, which Dr. Hazmer expected to come off in about two weeks' time. And that was his expectation. And guess which choice the mother made? The second, the latter, the silver nitrate. So as we see in later accounts, in Korean newspapers, as this story has uh, since then became a sensational story, you see actually there is a picture of the boy with, um, you cannot really make out the, the words, which had faded since the initial branding, if you will, of the cheeks, but there you see the scar on at least one of the cheeks. So to sort of get ahead a little bit of talking about my uh, the process through which I learned about this story more fully. I went to the White States uh, and the General Conference archives during my dissertation research, and I was interested in this story because I knew about this story. So I went and actually looked for any material on this story, and, and, and I found, and I'm showing this to you on Zoom, which is not going to be captured by audio, but here's the sound of the speech. There's an actual letter <laughs> that Dr. Dr. Hazmer wrote to his parents a year later where he describes what just had happened and what is going to happen in terms of criminal proceedings that he was facing. And in the early portion of the letter, Dr. Hazmer writes, well, in describing the branding of the boy on his cheeks, well, I either got it too strong or he used a lot of other medicine trying to get it off. But anyway, two letters are faintly visible. This is writing about 11 months after the incident. And Dr. Hazmer continues, of course, I should not have done it in the first place, even if it would have come off when I expected it to. Christ would not have done it, and it is not the way for a missionary to win the confidence of the people. <laughs> and I write in my tweet, to that. Yeah. <laughs> Duh. <laughs> <laughs> And so uh, you, you sort of get a sense that, you know, he, yes, as I'll 
editorialized a bit later. It, it was a cruel act, and it yeah. was a very you know, unfortunate decision that he made, which perhaps suggests uh, a certain uh, racist view of the Korean people, mm-hmm. even, as a, even, as a, even as a missionary. But that's me editorializing. Uh, but we're still in July of 1926, about 11 months after. So initially, it becomes a non-incident in terms of the public eye. The boy's discipline, if you will, is obviously embarrassed about what happened. Mother is embarrassed, but maybe glad that the, there was no police reporting. But slowly and, sl- slowly, and slowly, as the scar remains uh, undisappears, so to speak, that's sort of a double, triple negative, it remains on the face. And uh, even Dr. Hazmer can see that about 11 months later in July of 2026. But by that point, it had become more of a public incident. And at this time, Korea is under Japanese colonial rule. So, in, and that's an important uh, meta text to this story. So in 1909, Korea becomes a Japanese colony. And as you know, it, it, uh, that goes on for about 30 years until the end of the World War, the Second World War, right? So we're in the middle of Japanese uh, colonial occupation of Korea. And at this time, there's a lot of increasing friction between Japan and the Western powers, especially with control over China as a key international political political issue. Uh, and so the Japanese, Japanese colonial authorities, prosecutors, learn about this incident. And here's an American missionary who did this terrible thing to a child, and they want to... You know, make an example out of that statement. And so they bring an infliction of bodily injury charge upon Dr. Hazmer. So somewhat belatedly, uh, perhaps uh, some might say in, in, as an example of uh, overzealous prosecution, as some might say, <laughs> uh, regardless of how one views it, there, there, are, there, are there is this charge. And Dr. Hazmer is brought to court on this criminal charge and there are pictures of him uh, in a Japanese colonial court in Pyongyang uh, answering to this criminal charge. Before that time, as the criminal proceedings are continuing, Dr. Hazmer decides that, oh, I not only did I do something wrong as a missionary, there are some perhaps civil liabilities here. And so he settles the case civilly with the family by giving him, according to his own words in his letter to his parents, all the money that he had, which is 620 yen in Japanese currency. And I don't know what that translates to today. But so he settles it civilly, but there, there's this criminal charge that's remaining. And in July and August of 1926, Dr. Hazmer in this Japanese colonial court is convicted of infliction of bodily injury upon this Korean boy. And by that point, this is called the Hazmer Affair. Internationally, there are stories of this going out abroad, probably in part because the Japanese colonial authorities are are interested in in internationalizing this story. This is also called the barbaric American incident. Reuters covers it. uh, newspapers in America, even the kind of smaller markets in Spokane, uh, covers this story. Adventist 
periodicals cover this story. So this is a real international incident at this point. And ultimately, Dr. Hazmer is convicted and sentenced to three months of penal servitude uh, by the Japanese colonial court. But the sentence is suspended for two years, and this case is appealed. Uh, but while this case is being appealed, Dr. Hazmer, upon conviction, is dismissed from mission service. He hastily uh, leaves Korea, and you know it's disputed as to whether he is um, doing uh, the quote escape stealthily or with open knowledge or even tacit approval of the Japanese colonial authorities. That's uh, sort of a historically disputed point. But he does leave. Korea uh, later in 1926, uh, and this continues to be a political uh, flashpoint between the Japanese Empire and the West. But after a while, Korean media realizes what the Japanese authorities are doing with this story, uh, sensationalizing it. Uh, yes, everyone is unhappy with what Dr. Hitler did. But the way this is being used to stoke anti-American, anti-Western sentiment in Korea is uh, now uh, in the 1920s, if you see Korean media stories, there's this backlash against the Japanese uh, sensationalization of the story, such that there you see editorials then saying Dr. Hazmer, despite the terrible thing that he did, on the whole, is a friend to Korea. He came and you know, gave his uh, life and in his service in his 20s, in service uh, to the Koreans. So the, the verdict is somewhat actually mixed in terms of in the court of public opinion. But Dr. Hazmer does leave Korea, returns to the United States, continues to work as a physician, as a Seventh-day Adventist physician, uh, in, primarily in, at the New England Sanitarium and Hospital in Sonom, Massachusetts. And uh, ultimately, he uh, in retirement, it goes to uh, Alabama, and if you go to, also, I also visited a genealogy site, <laughs> ancestry.com, it shows that he, he passed away in 1983. So, he had a full life as a, uh, in service uh, as a physician, but this story does kind of give you a somewhat complex um, uh aspect of what it meant to be a missionary in the 1920s uh, with different assumptions and motivations and uh, biases, if you will, one brings to, uh, to mission service. I'll just read one note uh, from a uh, letter that the head of the Seventh-day Adventist mission wrote back to General Conference reporting what was happening uh, but uh, it, it, it does talk about how Hazmer, during the time when unfortunate incident was unfolding, he, he made no attempt to shun obligations or to shift blame or to act contrary to the right principles in any way. And so he took a very humbled, uh, perhaps even humiliated, but humbled and contrite approach. Uh, and that's the story of Dr. Hazmer. Thank you. I find that so fascinating, not only because of the personal element, but because of the geopolitics. And um, I commend both of you for taking the time to research these stories and um, even get into genealogy. 
Um, really quickly, I, you know, I, I want to open it up for both of you to maybe ask each other questions, but Alyssa, I'd love for you to tell us how in the world you got interested in your, uh, friend Mags. <laughs> sure. So, um, so Michael, uh, Campbell's book 1919 came out, uh, last year and I read it. I think I read it very quickly after it was published. And it's just a short little book, and um, you can get through it in like a day. And um, really fascinating. But what really struck me is I think in chapter two, he kind of mentions, um, you know, because he's obviously talking about the turmoil after Ellen White's death and trying to figure out, you know, the 1919 Bible Conference when they're trying to figure out, you know, was she a prophet? What do we do with like these plagiarism charges? And so he spends maybe, I don't know, two or three pages mentioning, hey, like during all of this, turmoil following on White's death, it was Margaret Rowan, you know, walking in, claiming to be a prophetess. Um, and I was just fascinated by this woman. I mean, it was just like such a short story and this aside and his book. But, you know, I mean, the fact that she, she went so far as to like not just forge a letter, but get it like put into the, the LNG White State vault. And then to try to attempt murder when one of her followers betrayed her. I mean, this is like, this is some extreme stuff. And I was just like, why have I never heard about this woman before? This is, this is like the cool, like, I was going to say the coolest story, but it's, it's a really disturbing story, really. Um, but, you know, this is the kind of Advent history that I just find so fascinating. Why weren't we taught this in school? <laughs> yeah. It's just so... So for me, like I read it there in Michael Campbell's book first, and then I just started um, Googling and you know, she's on Wikipedia, and then she's mentioned in the LNG White Encyclopedia as well. And, and I just found a bunch of different um, sources of information about her. And then, like I said, since, since writing the story of what I had, I've, I've since found more um, from, from Julius as well, like about what happened to Dr. Fulmer after um, I was like, wow, like there's, there's even more to this story and it's just so interesting. Yeah, absolutely. I, th I, um, want to think a little bit about what these stories tell me about Adventism because while they're, um, connected to kind of larger, um, issues, obviously Julius, we're talking about, you know, international power, um, in addition to issues of right and wrong. And I think Alyssa, we have those issues of, you know, um, power, but what does it mean when a powerful woman is gone and another woman who is, you know, recognizes maybe her own charismatic power, but doesn't feel like it's recognized, recognized by the men in her community as, as much. And so it's interesting to me in your story, Alyssa, that she seems to have several doctors who are supporters of hers, um, who have social cachet. And so we think, okay, well, if these guys, you know, these men of science believe her, maybe then we would as well, or at least maybe that's what her you know, the other members of her um, burgeoning community were thinking. So I think both of those make me want to think more about what it is in Adventism that connects in some way. Julius, what, um, what drew you to your story beyond, I mean, you were working on your PhD and yet you took time out of it to research this story. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. I initially heard about it from 
just reading about this incident in a Korean Korean history, I'm sorry, Korean Seventh Day Adventist history textbook, and there's there is some mention of this, like the main gist of it, without the context of you know, geopolitical struggle, and but just the main story of it, you know, an American, a young American missionary going and within a year committing this violent act and then being fired, needing to leave, being convicted. So it's a, that's just an interesting human drama there. So I wanted to see what materials there were. There must have been uh, some correspondence about the, this incident was my assumption. And sure enough, there was in the Ellen White uh, estates materials and also GC archives. And uh, I didn't find that much. I, just the small file fold, but there was enough to give context. And I should also give credit to a journalist who is currently working in Korea who heard about this recently, when I say recently, in the last five years, and actually did a full blog post about uh, about this, going to primary sources. And he's, he's a secular, secular journalist, but he uh, did I think as far as this story goes, uh, did our community a service by pulling together various materials from media sources, including from our own, when I say our own, our church archives and, and the arch- archival materials that are now, uh, so much of it, of it is online. And going back to Margaret Rowland's story, uh, the gist of it also is there in, for example, Light Bearers, The Remnant, uh, Big Schwartz's uh, textbook that's been around for decades. Just the way uh, the Hazemore story, the gist of it was already there in the Korean essay history, but the, the full, fuller fleshing out of it really hasn't been done, which is why, as Elisa mentioned, it, it, it sort of is forgotten or no one really knows about it. And I think uh, knowing that fuller context the, that really highlights the human drama it's not embarrassing for our community. It actually more, makes it more interesting that it, that there are these uh, real tensions and real desires that go in different directions that that are part of our community. Yeah, like I I totally agree. I think you know I think sometimes we as Adventists we we want to hide kind of the you know less than stellar pieces of our history, but to me those are the most fascinating parts, right? Like it, it reminds us that we're that we're, we're human. And, you know, what you were mentioning, Alex, um, the power dynamics, you know, I think we, especially in like 1919 without, you know, in the aftermath of Ellen White's death, you saw that with, with all sorts of, you know, people trying to claim, you know, different powers and, and authority. And that, I think that, you know, anytime you have a religious organization that is suddenly without a leader, you're going to see people um, try to take advantage of that. And that is a piece of our history um, that I think needs to be explored and needs to be acknowledged and needs to be better understood. Um, I think Margaret Rowan was obviously a very intelligent woman, um, very charismatic. Like you mentioned, you know, she surrounded herself with some really important, powerful people who could really bolster what she was saying and doing. Um, She, you know, brought in tons of money. (laughs) She apparently spent on herself. But that's, you know, that takes a lot of intelligence to do, but it also takes, like, I think um, some, (laughs) 
obviously some unethical, um, you know, she, she clearly wasn't, um, yeah, she, she was willing to exploit people, um, in the name of power. And I think that unfortunately you find that over and over again in religious organizations and you have found it over and over again in, in Adventism. And we can't just keep sweeping those stories under the rug and pretending like it doesn't happen. It, it, it continues to happen. And, and I think talking about it, um, is important and, and it's, and it's just really interesting. Absolutely. Um, thank you so much for pointing out that it's important for us to um, unearth these stories and communicate about them, uh, even gossip about them uh, in a way. Uh, Julius, one part of your um, uh, um, tweet thread that I read was that North Korea continues to st- to use this story in propaganda, which I found really fascinating that it's uh, lived on as a way of, of, of showing that the kind of imperialist uh, West, uh, you know, was bad in this case. Um, how did you dig up that info or, or what was that interesting to you as well? Yeah. And <clears throat> Uh, that's the part that I decided to skip over because I thought I, I, I was starting to ramble. But thank you for allowing me to ramble on even further. Always. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I'm relying on uh, different accounts that are uh, online that others who are either um, refugees from North Korea, those who left the regime, uh, and others who have studied North American propaganda literature have observed that there is this story of an American doctor who came to America as a missionary and abused uh, the people of North Korea, especially the, the, the peasants, uh, those who are working class, the pro- proletariat. And I, I think the story has gotten bigger and bigger in terms of the abuse. Sure. That uh, the, this particular missionary was actually not named as Hazmer, but you know, it, the story has lived on as a representation of the West, America in particular, as having the appearance of good and uh, philanthropy and so forth, but in reality, having that abusive power and and having violence as its central tenet. So there's some connection between, I suppose, uh, North American propaganda and Adventist pathology. Yeah, (laughs) very true. Well, I have two quick questions for you as we wrap up. One is, uh, uh, where can folks find these stories? What are your Twitter handles that you're using for the the narrative arts, Uh, Alyssa? Uh, my Twitter handle is at awwritestories. Great. And um, Julius Nam? I uh, I recently changed my Twitter handle to focus more on Adventist stories because I was tweeting about uh, wholly unnecessary random things. And I, I, I wanted to have a more disciplined way of tweeting, so I changed it. It used to be just my name, but changed it to Narrative Ventus. So Narrative, then E-N-T-I-S-T. Um, I also have it secure, which is I am 
happy to engage in conversation with uh, those who are in, uh, interested in this, but I'm also putting some uh, guardrails up so that I can have a more focused conversation. But regardless, that's my handle. Great, great. We'll link both of those. And um, if folks are interested, please uh, follow them and uh, enjoy the experience as I do. Uh, last question for both of you, um, uh, Julius first and then Alyssa. Why don't you tell us, are you planning on, uh, do you have an idea of a story? Don't give it away. Just tell us, do you have like a little a little taste of what folks might experience in the future? These, uh, the sort of, um, the other side of Adventism. Yes, I do have one. And this actually comes from my uh, PhD dissertation on the book Questions on Doctrine. And I've actually been tweeting my dissertation I stopped for a few weeks, but I'm about to re- return to doing so. But I'm really looking forward to getting to the Froom and Andreas and back and forth chapter, where uh, using co- personal correspondence uh, between the two, uh, there's a lot of really theolog- theological uh, trash talking going on between those two <laughs> theologians, which I find to be really interesting and you know, the the five or six who actually read my dissertation have said that those uh, that that portion was the most delicious. So I'm thinking of a way to popularize a little bit more, but uh, we'll see if I can actually do that successfully. Great. So if you like delicious theological trash talking, check out Julius Nam. And Alyssa, what do you have to offer us if we're interested in something delicious? Yeah, so, well, the great thing about telling Mags' story is all of a sudden I got all sorts of um, interesting uh, story leads. So I actually have a whole list, but the two that I am currently working on and hoping to unveil soon are uh, one about Uriah Smith, who was a bit of a Renaissance man and invented a really fascinating invention that I'm going to talk about. Great. And then also one about uh, John Harvey Kellogg, who, um, not not a fun story about John Harvey Kellogg, um, but a very interesting one. So those are the two that I'm, I'm working on currently. Well, I'm looking forward to reading both of those. Thank you so much for uh, talking with me and all the listeners. Um, and I wish you all the best as you continue to uh, educate and entertain us. Yes, I knew Sister White. We will not fear. The kingdom is alive. The kingdom's on the move when the poor and the meek and the hungry and the lonely 